You're listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are interested in raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name's Jesse. And I'm Rachel. And we'll be your hosts for this half hour of Library Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking about the use of internet filters in libraries, as well as the broader topic of censorship. First up, we spoke with Allison Stewart, director at the Stony Plain Public Library, who talked to us about internet filters in the public library context. My name is Allison Stewart, and uh, I am the director of library services at Stony Plain Public Library. So today we are talking about internet filters, Mm -hmm. and my understanding is you do not use them at your library system. Is that correct? That is correct. So Stony Plain Library does not uh, use filters. Two reasons. One is philosophical and one is a practical reason. The the philosophical one is that it kind of ties into what the purpose of a public library is. And the purpose of public libraries are to reduce barriers to knowledge and information. We are publicly funded entities. We are supposed to serve an entire community, regardless of who you are, what you do. When you walk into a public library, you have the right to access. An internet filter is essentially a barrier to information. Um, The Alberta Library Association's paper on uh, intellectual freedom and internet filters doesn't mince words. It basically says it's censorship. And libraries and censorship have a problematic relationship. The practical issue is that they're really ineffective. My personal experience, I used to be in a high school library prior to working in public libraries. It was a Catholic high school, so it did have a filter on it. The kids generally managed to find their way around it using proxy servers. That was always an adventure, keeping tabs on them. Um, And... uh, I spent a lot of time unblocking legitimate sites for teachers who couldn't access the information they needed to actually teach the students because the filter was blocking out that type of information. So it kind of comes down to also this idea of what is the wrong information and what is the right information. Yeah, and my understanding with a lot of these filters is they don't always have overrides that administration can access. No. So that's super problematic. It is. So the way it was set up at our at our particular school was that I was able to override. But if I'm spending my time basically monitoring students who are working their way around the, the, the filters and unblocking thing, teachers, there's a, a really ridiculous amount of wasted time. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a public library where we are providing multiple different services to multiple different patrons, having to run back and forth and unblock a site for a patron is is ridiculous. It's just a waste of time. And and who's to say what's the right information and what's the wrong information? Like if if even if you were able to access information with a filter on there there's always that unknown, what are you not getting that is legitimate and useful to you because the internet filter has decided that it can't have it. The biggest issue can be things of a sexual nature, but if you type in sex and and the internet filters blocking off sex, it can block off questions about homosexuality, sexually transmitted diseases, um, sexually related cancers. People use library computers to look up all sorts of different things. We do have on our, we have a time management software loaded on our computers. So there is a screen that pops up that is our internet use agreement. And the user has to click, I agree, 
before they can move forward and access anything else on it. It basically says that you won't use the library's computers to access pornography, um, online gambling, things like that. If you're looking at the balance of things, the access to internet is far more important than the small risk that people could be exposed to offensive materials. Absolutely. Um, the Canadian government is moving to most of your forms that you need to do are online. Um, the Alberta government, most of what you need to do is online. A lot of people come in because they live in a rural community and uh, high-speed internet's a bit sketchy and they might not have access. And the only way they can apply for a job is online. So the ability to access high-speed internet in our modern society is is, all, is literally at this point in time a matter of being able to be an employed person and being able to function normally in our society. Right, and going off of that, so the whole idea of digital literacy, understanding how to navigate all the new technology and to be a savvy web user, when kids have filtered internets, like are they able to learn which websites are good, which websites are bad? Should we be teaching kids those skills, especially at a library, is that our responsibility? My take on that is that that is a wider educational issue for um, that public libraries are partners in. So when we have the opportunities to address information literacy, which for my understanding is just one of the broader aspects of digital literacy, because digital literacy isn't just about knowing how to use and how to access technology on your smartphone or on a computer. It's also that ability to, um, as you say, navigate and assess the information on a website. And it's also something that it's not going to come through in a really emotionally charged conversation about internet filters. If someone says, well, I don't want my kid being exposed to porn, you don't really have a snappy answer in return to explain the nuance of learning how to navigate safely and being critical and mindful of where you're accessing information. And that's and that's um, and that is actually part and parcel of our larger conversations we have in public libraries because um, for our library we go by the Canadian Library Association statement on intellectual freedom. Essentially, if a patron walks into our library and the and they have a library card in their name, they can sign out any inf- any item in our library that they want. So that's regardless of age. So if an eight year old walks into our library and wanted um, material that some people might think inappropriate, we're not in a position to make that decision because we don't act in parentis locus. It is not our responsibility to act as parents to people in the library, and that's including adults. It's not our call to make judgments on what people want to access. What we can do is explain to parents and say that we make sure parents know when they give their child a library card, this is how this is going to work. If there's materials that you don't want your child to access or you don't want your child to see, then we suggest that you have conversations with your child. And that's what and that's comes in with the internet use as well. We can help you if you if you need information, if you need um, some more um, ways of expressing these things to your child and you want you want some tools. We can absolutely help you with that, but you need to have those conversations because we can't do it. We don't know what you would like your child to know. It sounds like the whole approach when you don't have filters is a little bit more holistic, like providing tools, having conversations, even going back to what you said earlier about how you have um, an acceptable Internet use policy that people have to agree to. Not having Internet filters makes it 
a bigger conversation, but a more productive one that's going to guide people to better internet use and to maybe even feel like they have more of a relationship with you. Would you say that's accurate? Like that they're is. more part of the community? That's absolutely accurate. And again, that's so hot, the way public libraries fit into the community. That's one of the roles we play is uh, we're there to help you access information. Well, great. Thank you so much, Allison. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. That was Allison Stewart in conversation with Amanda, discussing internet filters in public libraries. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. Today we are talking about internet filters, a topic of great importance to librarians because of its close ties to censorship and freedom of speech. Let's take a listen to an interview with Dan Moreau, Library Director and Director of Learning Enhancement Projects at Concordia University, who will give us some insights into the issue of internet filters as it relates to the academic context. Hello, my name is Celine Gahobrenin, and I am here with... Larissa McLeod. And today we are interviewing Dan Miro, and I'm just going to give him the chance to introduce himself to all of our listeners. Hi, everyone. My name is Dan Miro. I am the library director at the Concordia University of Edmonton. Why doesn't Concordia limit internet access in any way? Well, I guess it is because we haven't really had any issues with providing open and unfiltered internet access. So while Concordia does uphold high standards for intellectual academic freedom as articulated in its mission, and in a, in a draft statement we've developed um, around academic freedom, uh, really I think the, the real answer to your question is that we haven't had any issues, so there's been no need. Does this align with your personal views on access? And if you could speak a little to your personal views on what access is and means to you. Um, yes, this does align with my personal views. I think that's why I find it very rewarding to work at Concordia because it does provide this open environment for healthy debate and uh, academic discussion. This summer, the Dean of Students at the University of Chicago said that the school would not be supporting trigger warnings, which definitely sparked a debate in our field about censorship on school campuses. Do you have any thoughts on this? I suppose, yeah, I did have to kind of look into this because when you when you mentioned the Dean of the University of Chicago, I hadn't read about that. Um, but having read it, um, I guess in my mind... A university is a place where people will explore ideas together, and those ideas may not always be safe, because the world we live in isn't very safe. Um, but the environment in which those ideas are explored should be safe. I think people debate what it means to provide a safe environment. I don't think safety means safety from ideas. I don't think it means safety from uh, expressions of ideas. I think it's safety from harmful intent. And if I understand correctly, trigger warnings are kind of warnings that would be placed before an instructor were to show certain types of content in class. Right, yeah. right. Um, I guess it, it doesn't make any sense to me because if I'm on the instruction side, I have to imagine what a classroom filled with, say, 35, 70 students 
could potentially be offended by. And if I'm imagining that offense, then I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to really stay away from introducing material which may need to be presented in class. And if I'm a student on this other side of the trigger warning, I'm looking at a trigger warning and I'm thinking like, oh, what's my option now? I could be offended by this. I'm going to opt out. And I don't know. You get into this place where it's almost like everything needs to have a trigger warning or nothing has a trigger warning. And I think that instructors need to be sensitive and they need to think about how they're presenting material. That is a responsibility they have. But they also can't second guess their impulse because, you know, 99% of instructors are probably well-meaning, well-intentioned. And, you know, that doesn't, that isn't to say that students shouldn't have the right to voice their concerns about the way information is being presented or the information that's being presented. Um, but that's the healthy debate. That's what the academy is for. Should students be protected from certain language, certain language that might have a harmful or intent behind them? I, I don't think that language in itself is harmful. I think it's the intention behind the language and how it is used. And so the same word could be used in the context of explaining a concept rather than targeting an individual or group with some sort of mean-spirited message. And so language itself seems somewhat neutral to me, though I think words can take on harmful connotations. And I think we're all aware as part of a community what those harmful connotations may be. And it's important to be sensitive around language. But I don't think avoiding specific words per se just is going to avoid any problems. What responsibility does a university have to protect students, either protect them from offensive material, we've kind of talked about them, compared to the responsibility to give full access to information? I think that universities have a responsibility to provide safe environments in terms of you know, physical safety. Um, I think that there are probably ways of communicating that can be hurtful, harmful, violent, threatening, intimidating. And those forms of communication should be regulated on a campus. But I also think that in some ways those forms of behavior and speech are already regulated by uh, Canadian law. And I don't know if the university has a real role or responsibility to further legislate behavior, speech, action, etc., at, at a more granular level. Um, I think that students at a university predominantly, you know, they're old enough to take it, right? Like, um, and while instructors, I think, are sensitive and caring, and hopefully they're providing information and teaching with that view of, you know, creating an independent thinker, and they don't want to paralyze people with fear or, you know, traumatize them with, you know, visual imagery or what have you that would uh, prevent learning, they have to introduce those things. They have to make it slightly unsafe in order for learning to take place. While we were looking at this topic, we found it very tough to find any institutions that limit academic filters at oh, all. Yeah. And so have you ever encountered them? And what do you think is unique to the academic library setting? I, I, I have never encountered a post-secondary institution that uses some form of software to filter the internet. Um, I've, I've heard of 
network administrators shaping traffic based on content, but that has more to do with preserving bandwidth than it does avoiding people seeing or viewing or reading specific kinds of material. Um, so I, I think that in some ways, universities really are upholding these standards. Uh, but I think it's very important that you're asking these questions. Um, in you asking me these questions, I uh, spoke to our chief information officer at Concordia and talked to him about it. And even in raising the question, you can see how he's already thinking. He's like, what is our end user agreement and what is its state? What are the prohibited uses of the network? And of course, they're, they're things that are already like prohibited by the law, more or less. Um, but for us to review those things, to think carefully about how our articulated policy upholds the standards of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the, the Declaration of Human Rights, because, um, you know, language gets old. And sometimes we don't look at these policies and what we're well-meaning at a time and meant to address specific issues at the time, they, uh, they date. Well, thank you so much, Dan. We yeah, really appreciate you. you being here. And thank you for a wonderful interview. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Dan Moreau in conversation with our own Celine Garo-Brennan and Larissa McLeod talking about censorship, internet filters, and academic libraries. We have one more interview for you today with Sandra Shores, the Senior IT and Facilities Officer at the University of Alberta Libraries, who will discuss the issue of internet filters in an academic library setting from the IT perspective. Hello, my name is Céline Garobrenin. I am a library student here at the University of Alberta, and I'm here with my colleague Larissa McLeod, also a library student here at the U of A. And today we have our guest, Sandra Shores. And I'm going to let Sandra Shores just introduce herself. Sure. So I'm a librarian who works at the University of Alberta Libraries. Um, my areas of responsibility are overseeing IT and facilities for the university libraries and some work for learning services. Excellent. Well, welcome, Sandra. We are so glad you can be here today. Why doesn't the University of Alberta limit internet access in any way? To begin with, I can only represent what we do in the libraries with public workstations and staff workstations, whereas Central IST, which provides centralized computing services for all students and faculty, may do things somewhat differently. So I'm not speaking on their behalf, although I think generally we do things much the same. And just to clarify, we do limit internet access in one small, narrow way. The University Central IST and we will uh, run spam filters and we run AV filters, etc., to to block out uh, malicious code, malware, um, and things that you probably want blocked anyway through spam filtering, that kind of thing, and antivirus. So we do filter on that level. However, we do not filter on a content subject matter kind of level. So the reason we don't do that is somewhat multifaceted. Number one, uh, we presume people are adults. We know some people come here as younger than, you know, legal adults, but they're certainly mature minors if they're here at the University of Alberta. We are adults. 
working in an environment where we are fostering academic freedom. We are all governed, number one, by Canadian law. So one cannot use university IT resources to do something that is illegal. We, we all know we, there's Canadian law that prohibits, um, you know, the production and uh, distribution and access of things like child pornography. We have laws against hate speech. We have laws that prohibit us from hacking into other people's computing resources. Um, in addition to that, we have policies at the University of Alberta that urge us and require us to create uh, learning environments that are respectful and civil and don't cause harassment to others. Does this align with your personal views? Yes, absolutely. Because I believe in universities. I believe we should be challenged. We are um, at different stages in our lives, but there are many people here who are sort of younger adults who should be questioning what they've been raised with with, and what they have been taught and what they have been thinking about. And, and, And in the end, we may feel stronger about our beliefs and values, but we have to be open to having conversations and to, and to exploring. I really like that idea of challenging that you bring up, especially that I feel like as a university student, I have often been very challenged in my values and very core values. And those have been pivotal learning moments for me. I'm just wondering for Larissa and Sandra, if there were any moments for you, like any real aha moments in university that challenged any core values or views you might have. There are a couple of ways in my employment here. I'm, so I'm speaking um, of things that are more recent to me than my experiences as a student. One relates to gender and gender identity, and another to um, everything that is happening since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think I, I maybe had my values in the right place prior to the emergence of these as really important issues, but I didn't pay enough attention to them. So I'm really glad and grateful for a lot of the conversation that's going on across every aspect of campus. Thank you for that. I think that's really profound. Like, I think that idea of values, it's so hard to be challenged by those, too. It's really difficult. We have you as a specialist, really, in your field who works in IT. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of Internet filters for keeping unwanted materials out. I think it is quite evident um, that internet filtering can be highly successful if you want to control people and what they can gain access to. And certainly you can look at some countries such as even China, where they have great technologies that uh, really constrain people's access to information and access to content. The challenge of internet filtering is that... uh, There there are different ways to do it, but it's often based on white lists and black lists and then different algorithms that block content based on words or types of um, files associated or scripts associated with websites or whatever. Um, And no algorithm is intelligent enough or subtle enough to understand nuance or purpose. So, yeah, they're quite effective in controlling but I'm not sure that they're very effective in allowing people to move forward with the kind of work they need to do. This summer, the dean of students at the University of Chicago said that the school would not be supporting trigger warnings, which, of course, sparked quite a debate within our field about censorship on school campuses. What were your thoughts on this? To me, a trigger warning, which is someone saying, by the way, we're going to start talking about X or Y or Z. You may have an experience in your life, or you may be coming from a situation that where this causes you some anxiety or concern, or you may feel a little uneasy or, you know, unsafe that far along. Nonetheless, we're going to talk about it, so come prepared. I think the Dean of Students at the University of Chicago went too far. I see nothing wrong with saying to people, 
warning them and saying, you know, we want to create an environment of respectful conversation. We're going to talk about this. I like the idea that we have in our information technology use and management policy that we are open about academic freedom, which an academic freedom to me speaks very much to the heart of what happens in a classroom, what happens in a teaching and learning environment. But I think we have to be open about what we allow to be discussed, but I think we need to try to maintain a supportive and a civil and a respectful environment. That respectfulness means respecting the diversity of where people come from. That speaks to what happens in the classroom. In in the library, we don't require people to speak about any particular topic or, you know, uh, uh, participate in conversations that could be very, very difficult. What we like to think about in the library is that we do provide a bit of a safe space for people. So if they want to take some friends from a class where things were tough, they could come to the library, they could book a group study room, they could be left by themselves there and to talk through it. Yeah, we've talked a lot about libraries as safe spaces, I think, and that's something we hear so often. Is there a role that libraries and internet filters should play in the protection of students from certain language So my opinion is that no, libraries don't really have a role here. You know about Banned Book Week, right? I love Banned Book Week because I think we should pay attention to what people are being asked not to even know exists, right? And I'm not talking about elementary school or kindergarten or whatever, but at a university, um, if you are at a website and it offends you, well, go away from it, right? We're not going to filter that. You're, You're an adult. So I don't see that the library should be trying to protect students or others from content or language. Is there anything else that you think is unique to internet filters in academic libraries versus public libraries or school libraries? Younger children who are less able maybe to discern or judge for themselves, um, maybe it just may be more beneficial for them to be directed towards sites that are great for the kind of work that they should be doing at that age. That, that's, my, that's, you know, a personal opinion. I have never worked as a librarian with young people. I've always worked at the university level, so I don't have work experience that maybe will better inform me. So I, I could say I, I, I'm open to the idea that maybe, maybe there's a role for that kind of a tool in those settings. I wouldn't pre- judge that I guess we just have one last question which we ask all it's the librarian question it's the librarian question it definitely (laughs) is so do you have anything you are reading right now or you've recently read it can be related or not related to internet filters really doesn't matter but you know I have to confess um, I love my job and I have been doing more reading lately related specifically to my job on the facility side because I've taken over that portfolio but um, when I go home at night I don't read true con- true okay. true confessions hoping that my boss doesn't pick up on this too much but I, I I read I'm a fiction reader I like mystery and there I have just been reading Tana French's new book which is the trespasser well thank you so much for being here Sandra Shores we've really really enjoyed this time. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. That was Celine and Larissa talking with Sandra Shores about the issue of internet filters from an IT perspective. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to our guests, Allison, Dan, and Sandra, and to all of our contributors, including Bulat Nugmanov, who composed our theme music. We hope you enjoyed our exploration of the internet filters in libraries. Please check us out on Twitter at Shout for Libraries. That is Shout and the number four, Libraries. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at, again, Shout for Libraries. This has been Jesse. And this is Rachel. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library Radio. We leave you now with My Right by Screeching Weasel from the album Boogada Boogada Boogada. <laughs>